Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, April 6th, we're studying Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. Jesus has been convicted of blasphemy by the Sanhedrin, but it is the Romans who must execute the death penalty. Before Matthew recounts Jesus' trial before Pilate, however, he writes what happened to Judas when he went back to the chief priests and the elders. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Hans Feeney. Pastor Feeney serves at River of Life Lutheran Church in Shanahan, Illinois. Pastor Feeney, welcome to Sharper Iron. Good to be with you guys. As we get started this morning, Pastor Feeney, give us some context in Matthew's Gospel. Broad context, narrow context, what do we need to know going into today's text? Yes. Yeah, so uh, obviously this is a, a getting into kind of the second part of Christ's passion. So you you first have the lead up, you have the institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, you have uh, them going out to the Garden of Gethsemane. You have Jesus being betrayed and arrested. Uh, you have his trial. Uh, then Peter, you have Peter's denial of Jesus. And then 20, chapter 27 begins with being delivered over to Pilate. So the um, as you noted, the uh, the chief priests and the scribes know that they have to uh, essentially uh, have the secular authorities do their dirty work in putting Jesus to death, and so they bring him over to Pilate with all of these trumped-up charges. Let's go ahead and read the text and start digging in then. This is Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. There's the text for today, Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. Pastor Feeney, the, the text starts with that. It closes out the scene of the, the trial of Jesus from the Sanhedrin before moving on to Pilate, which is tomorrow's text. But in, in those first couple verses there, first the first thing at least stands out to me, when morning came. Now, this is this is Good Friday that's being described here in Matthew chapter 27. And, and here's morning of Good Friday. It, it just uh, there's a bit of irony i think there when when we come to chapter 28 later and it's going to be the dawn of the first day of the week the the difference between these two mornings uh, take us into those first couple of verses of the text yeah so uh when morning came all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against jesus to put him to death uh, yeah i think that's a it's a great observation about morning um, and it, what what it also uh, shows is, you know, I was wa last night I was um, watching, looking for something to watch on Amazon. So I took a nap after church, which meant I wasn't going to fall asleep until three o'clock in the morning. So I was looking for something pointless to watch. And I came across uh, this old documentary about the recording of the We Are the World session. And you have all of these artists coming together and they're uh, showing how they're getting there at like nine o'clock at night after the American Music Awards and they're working all throughout the night and into the morning, you know, for this great cause. And uh, it's uh, hosted or narrated or whatever by Jane Fonda and she's highlighting, uh, you know, this great level of devotion and tenacity that they all have for this great and wonderful cause. But if you think that people uh, will, will work hard uh, for a good cause, they work especially hard for a bad cause. And that's something that we see going here. So they've been, there's been this conspiring and this working throughout the night. 
And then at, uh, in the morning, at the first opportunity that they can, they bring him they bring him over to pilot the governor. So, so sort of as the first item of business for the day, they want to make sure that uh, they're handing him over to pilot and that pilot is, as I said, going to do their dirty work of condemning Jesus to death. What's the, I mean, the trial that they held in chapter 26 happened at night in darkness. Now it is morning. Is, is there, I've heard in, in the past, and I think I've probably taught this too, that, that the fact that the trial they held is at night is makes it illegitimate. And now they're trying to make it legitimate in the morning. Is that part of what's going on here? Yeah, you know, I've never heard that before, but it certainly is a it's an interesting observation and and wouldn't surprise me if that's the case that yeah, that that um, uh, see, see, things that are done by secret away from the crowds and in the darkness of night are generally not things that we are proud of doing. And you see this obviously with the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees throughout the Gospels, that there is this um, there's this constant fear of the people, and they're afraid uh, to just simply come to Jesus uh, in the in broad daylight and bring accusations against him because they know the crowds are not going to receive that well. And you, I mean, you see you know, you see Jesus talking about this when he's betrayed in Gethsemane, and when they come to arrest or, uh, when they come to arrest him in Bethsemane, in Gethsemane. Where, um, where he basically says, "Look, I, you know, I've been teaching all the time in the temple, uh, and you guys didn't have anything to say then. But suddenly, you're coming to me in the middle. You know, you're coming to me at night, away from the crowds, with with clubs and swords, as though I'm some sort of violent criminal." Uh, so there's, yeah, there is a um, kind of through their actions, there's a tacit acknowledgement that what they're doing is is evil and and certainly from from the perspective of an unbeliever that what they're doing is shady that they don't actually this isn't the way that you conduct business when you're really confident about the uprightness of your cause you know that's things like that don't happen in secret when you're really confident that uh, that you're in that you're the guy who's in the right and um so yeah i think by then coming to pilot in the morning uh, then, you know, as soon as they can hand this over to Pilate and have him make that that declaration, it's as though they're able to kind of wash their hands of the situation and to, and to give it this kind of air of legitimacy. This is something that people are, are constantly trying to do uh, with their sins is, um, is, is to give things the air of legitimacy, that if you can say that someone who has some sort of authority is, the, is actually the one who made this decision, then you don't need to wrestle with the illegitimate way that you that you went about doing things. That that question of authority has been a, a key one in Holy Week back in Matthew chapter twenty one or twenty two twenty one I think where where they they come to Jesus and ask him what authority he has to do these things and he turns the right. question on them and and so here here it comes up again. What about what about Pilate? He, he this is the. I think in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time we meet him as a an individual within the gospel. What do, what do we know about Pilate, and why is he important at this stage in the narrative? So, yeah, Pilate is the is the Roman appointee, the governor uh, of the region, and um, I don't uh, yeah I'm not I don't remember exactly off the top of my head what the parameters of the region are, but um, so the so Israel is not a sovereign nation uh, at this point in history. Um, they are allowed to sort of exist broadly as they as the as the Jewish people so will under this arrangement, um, but they are ultimately controlled by the Roman government and uh, and Pilate is the is the Roman appointee so you see you see this a lot throughout uh, throughout ancient history with these empires that would rise and fall what they you know kind of figured out over the process i suppose of trial and error with these empires was that you you know if you're going to run an, an empire you can't spend all of your time putting down uprisings and so you have to give people some freedom to actually live according to the customs and the cultures and the religious practices you know of that of that people and of that culture so um, uh, so what they would do is they would have things like, for example, you know, you have the, the various series of Herods who are called the king of the Jews, even though they're really not legitimate kings of the Jews. They're not legitimate heirs to David's throne. Uh, but, it, uh, you know, in particular, Herod the Great uh, is, uh, is a, uh, an Edomite. He's sort of uh, kind of halfway, uh, sort of a halfway Jewish convert. 
that the Romans sort of figure, well, he's Jewish enough to kind of pacify the people so they won't riot like we're putting, you know, some Greek guy uh, on the throne. But at the same time, he doesn't have any real loyalty to the Jewish people. And we know that he'll rule in a way that is beneficial to us. And um, you see kind of the same thing with with Pilate, where uh, so Pilate is not Jewish. Pilate uh, is not meant to kind of pacify them in that sense. But Pilate knows there's kind of this tension between uh, these these two forces before him. So on the one hand, you've got uh, the Roman government, which is the one employing him. It's the one that's put him into this position of power. It's the one that has authority to punish him if he carries that out uh, unfaithfully in their eyes. And then you also have the Jewish people. So he, so on the one hand, Pilate needs to keep uh, them satisfied, but he also needs to keep the Roman government satisfied. And you can see that tension throughout the passion narrative and in, in all of the gospels where um, where Pilate is, he knows that Jesus is innocent. He he's you know probably quite an intelligent, very intelligent and savvy guy, who can and he perceives that it's out of envy that uh, the chief priests are bringing Jesus to him. So he knows this is a sham, but at the same time he doesn't have a loyalty to the scriptures. He's not a believer. He doesn't uh, recognize that Jesus is the actual Son of the Living God, and on account of that he doesn't have this. Um, this sort of faithful desire to preserve the life of Jesus from these false accusations as the, as the accusations are ramping up and as the hostility is growing. And as we'll see later on, when he perceives that a riot is about to break out, he essentially just says, all right, fine, I'm going to give you guys what you want because I know that it's going to get me in trouble with my bosses and the Roman government. If I uh, err on, if, you know, if, if I um, make my decisions on the side of justice and, and, and let Jesus go and set him free, I know you guys are going to riot and then the Romans are going to get angry at me and they're going to yell at me and you know, possibly put me to death for not putting some random Jewish guy to death when it would have solved all of my problems. Right. So, and, and Pilate's involvement here, he's he's got to be the one to do the actual execution. That's not an authority that the Jewish leaders themselves have at this point in history, right? Right. Yeah. So they, um, so the, the kind of the, the authority over civil matters um, has been has been given to uh, the to the Roman government. So the Jews are, still have freedom to kind of police their own. Uh, religious laws and things of that nature, but kind of this um, this distinction we see, you know, in the Old Testament between the ceremonial law and the civil law. So, you know, these are the things you can eat. These are the types of fabric you can wear. These regulations versus for clean and unclean, who can work in the temple, kind of things of that nature. Those things are still uh, left in place. But uh, when it comes to actually putting people to death for uh you know, kind of typical capital crimes, in particular, the way that they justify putting Jesus to death for claiming to be a king. That's the kind of stuff that is uh, now at this point in history given to the Roman government. And the other, particularly when it comes to the Roman government, Jesus has, in his predictions of his suffering and death, he said that he's going to be crucified. And that particularly is the the execution tool of the Romans. So to get the Romans involved at this point is is not only a a practical matter of history, but it also has to do with what Jesus has said in terms of what his death will look like. He's going to be crucified. He's talked to his disciples about carrying their cross. And so the, the involvement of the Romans then, in, in that sense, I mean, is a part of fulfilling what Jesus has said as well, right? Yeah, and, and as well as the prophecies of the scriptures in general. So, you know, the whole cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Um, and so there's this is really a fascinating thing about studying the scriptures is seeing how it is that the the wheels of these uh, fulfillments of prophecies are set in motion, you know, over the course of, of hundreds and of years, just of over the course of centuries. So, um, you know, so it's with so if, from what I understand, it's the um, uh, the Romans picked up. Uh, crucifixion from the Persians, you know, which were, it was obviously a, a previous empire. So there's this, uh, there's this long kind of sludging through uh, the sorrow and misery of history. And yet God is using all of that. And he's showing us how his hand is at work uh, through all of this in order to fulfill the scriptures. So 
um, so yes, in many ways, the Roman government was evil. Yes, um, uh, what Pilate did was certainly sinful in handing Jesus over to death when Jesus had committed no crime and when Jesus uh, was and is, in fact, the Son of God. But, of course, God was using all of this and using the might and the power of the Roman army, that he, the Roman Empire that he had allowed to build up in order to fulfill the scriptures and ultimately in order to bring about the salvation of the world. And of course, that's, you know, and then after the, um, after the crucifixion, that's kind of what we see going through. So that this, the continuing of the Roman Empire, uh, for all of the evil that it accomplished, it's also kind of the, um, the outward shell of that empire, the strength of that empire is what it is that God ultimately will, will use in great part uh, to spread the gospel throughout the world. Now, at, at this point in the narrative, Pilate is, is just being introduced. It's really the chief priests and the elders who are the primary actors in, in this part of the text still and, and going forward as well. Again, in these, these first two verses, I, I see a little bit of irony here. Verse 2, they bound Jesus, Jesus the one who's come to set people free from their sins. They, they're the ones here, and I think this is important to notice, they deliver Jesus over to Pilate, the governor. In, in the Greek, you've got the same, same verb. That's what Judas has done to Jesus. And later, it's right. what Pilate is going to do to Jesus when it comes time for the crucifixion. They're delivering Jesus over constantly, which I think invites a bit of reflection as to well, who's responsible for the death of Jesus What's what's really going on here? I mean, there's there's a number of ways to tackle that question, Pastor Feeney. Yeah, I th um, it's a fat, really interesting thing. I think pe people have a tendency. Um, that I, there's a, a saying I, I frequently say. It's not a terribly uh, eloquent way of putting it, but um, <laughs> that when uh, when people won't repent, they recruit. And you see this all, all the time in life, you know? So if you have a, a woman who's having marital problems and she's talking to her friends, her friends who are divorced are the ones who will very often be the most likely to convince her to divorce her husband. Uh, when uh, when a, the, 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 the biggest advocates oftentimes for uh, legalized abortion are women who have had abortions. Um, people who are, have engaged in certain sins are very frequently the ones who are trying to recruit as many people as they possibly can into committing those sins. And I think this is born from something in humans where we are convinced, according to our sinful nature, that we can somehow diffuse the judgment of God throughout the crowd. And if we can kind of spread it out evenly, sort of like putting on a pair of snowshoes, if you can spread the weight out evenly, then you're not going to sink into the snow. If you can spread out that judgment of God, it won't be as difficult uh, to endure. You know, it's, it's a bit like back when you were in school and, you know, and the teacher would be getting ready to pass out a test and you'd have some kid who would say, hey, you know what? I bet if we all refuse to take the test, there's no way she would fail all of us. Uh, so, you know, and you, all, you always know the kid who's saying that is not the kid who studied for the test. It's not the kid <laughs> who's very confident that he's going to get an A. It's the kid who knows, oh, boy, this is going to go really badly. So if I can recruit everyone into this act of defiance with me, uh, you know, the teacher will get mad, but I bet the judgment won't be as bad as, as it is if it's just on me squarely and directly. And there's there's certainly that aspect of things going on all throughout the Passion. Where yeah, you have the chief, you have the chief priests and the elders of the people conspiring against Jesus, wanting to put him to death, but they want to rope uh, Judas, or I'm, rather, I'm sorry, they want to uh, rope Pilate into this because if they can involve the secular authorities, then they can spread out that judgment. And with the secular authorities saying that Jesus is condemned, they can sort of say to themselves, Ah, see, we aren't the only ones here. Uh, we are, uh, we're not the only actors in this matter. And then, of course, as we get from Luke's gospel. Uh, Pilate hands uh, uh, Pilate hands over uh, Jesus to um, to Herod before he get, ends up getting sent back. So there's this constant trying to involve uh, as many people and, and recruit as many people into the condemnation of Jesus as possible, which I, I think is ultimately born from this desire to kind of spread out that judgment and to ease your conscience that if you can get as many people involved in it as possible. Uh, then, then you don't need to worry that that what you're doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. And and perhaps that's a similar move that we would make 
when we try to identify the blame today, like who's who is at fault, whose fault was it that Jesus was crucified? So so many of our our hymns point to the fact that it was my sin, mine, mine, yeah. the sin, right? And so we would try the same thing, but ultimately, as as this narrative, you know, putting it forward, I'm looking forward, you know, to tomorrow's text where where the all the people are going to cry out, "His blood be on us and on our children." Ultimately, when we think about who's responsible for Jesus' death, we have to include ourselves along in that in that answer as well. Yeah, this is to me one of the strange things I've oftentimes heard throughout my life is um, yeah, people asking this question. Uh, you know, this question is like, you know, did the Jews kill Jesus? Uh, and that's oftentimes used as a as a as a vile defense of, of anti-Semitism. Um, and but the, the strange thing about that. So you, and you'll have these debates where people say, oh, no, it wasn't really the Jews. It was, you know, Pontius Pilate. And that's obviously what, how we confess things in the creed, that it's ultimately we're laying this at, at the feet of Pontius Pilate. But at the same time, um, that, that's a fine question to ask as a kind of historical question. But as a deeper theological question, the reality that's not at all the right question to ask, because as you know, the reality is that Jesus is put to death for our sins. Um, so, so this wasn't something that was done. The, the death of Jesus Christ was not something that was done contrary to the will of God, but it was by the will of the Father. It was the, according to the will of the Father that he was crushed for our iniquities. So all of this is done. Uh, directly by God in order to ensure that our sins are forgiven, in order to honor all of his promises, in order to give us the gift of eternal life. So it's for our sins, and that should be our primary focus, that that as we as we meditate upon the, the nail marks in the hands and feet of Jesus, as we meditate upon the blood pouring down from his hands and his feet, from his brow, and all of this, we recognize we are the ones who who brought this here through our own sins. We are the ones who put the son of God to death. And as terrifying of a thing as that is to meditate upon, but then you go to the words of Jesus when he's saying, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, now, of course, in a, in a primary sense, he's talking about those, you know, gathered in front of him who have handed him over to be put to death. But ultimately those words are directed at those who are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's we that's us sinners that's the one we are the ones who have put him to death and on account of that we are the ones who have benefited from his forgiveness we are the ones who who have been given the right to live forever because the god that we put to death in violence responded not in violence to us but responded with love and with mercy and forgiveness and salvation i think within that as well you're hitting on another aspect of this irony that not only did our sins put Jesus on the cross, but actually this is the will of God. So that who has delivered Jesus over? Well, finally, this is this is something that God is at work in. As you as you said earlier with the Romans, you see God's hands throughout history to fulfill the scriptures. Throughout all of this, even as these human actors do what they are going to do, this is still God's will. He's the one that is is directing these events, and He's doing it all for our salvation. So ultimately, who's who's delivering? Well, this is this is the work of God. Finally, yeah. So I mean, I, I think, and again, kind of going back to the creed where we talk about how He was, uh, you know, delivered under Pontius Pilate and put to death under Pontius Pilate. That's important as an historical reality because we need to emphasize the fact that the crucifixion is actually an event that happened in human history. So the whole purpose of, it's not so much that the creed is assigning blame to Pilate, uh, as much as the creed is saying, this was an historical event that took place in human time, it actually happened, here's the historical figure who was present for it, so that we know this isn't just some story emerging, you know, out of the out of the mist of cultural mythology, but that it's a real, verifiable historical event, so that we can know that this did actually happen and that we benefited from it. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. Looking at the first ten verses of Matthew chapter 27 this morning, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around.
In this season of life, when everything seems to be constantly changing, one thing remains the same, the promises of God given to us in the Word of Christ. I'm Sarah Golseth, a digital media specialist for KFUL Radio, here at home in my spare room, to remind you all the ways you can hear the Word of Christ on KFUL Radio from wherever you call home. Our daily broadcast at KFUO.org includes talk programs, sacred music, daily chapel services, weekend worship services, and Bible studies. Our on-demand library includes many of our broadcast programs, in addition to podcasts from LC partners. You and your family can stream KFUO Radio at KFUO.org or on the TuneIn app. You can even ask your smart speaker to play KFUO Radio. You can also pull up your favorite podcast app and search for KFUO Radio to find all of our available podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest updates as well as daily Bible verses and hymns. We are KFUO Radio, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere at KFUO.org. Each weekday on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of Living Boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Monday, April 6th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10 with Pastor Hans Feeney of River of Life Lutheran Church in Shanahan, Illinois. Pastor Feeney, prior to the break, we looked at the first two verses of the text where the chief priests and elders take counsel. They're going to put Jesus to death. They take him to Pilate, the governor. And then Matthew shifts gears for, for a few verses here and changes scenes. And, and at least in the ESV, it's titled Judas Hangs Himself. Maybe the, the first thing to consider is the scene that, that we get, when does it take place? Are, are we to understand it happening right then on Good Friday? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, it's a little bit um, tough to tell the, the timing of this um, because uh, Matthew notes that when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, um, so, uh, it, this, this may be that something that uh, is not quite, uh, hundred percent chronological in the events of, of what's going on here. Um, I think, however, though, that what Matthew means by that is that, um, so it's not so much that he's, that this is taking place upon the point where Pilate condemns Jesus to death, but that rather, uh, rather that Judas, when he sees the direction that things are going, so he knows that Jesus is going to be condemned. He knows this is the end goal of the thing. He knows that this is the result of of his actions, uh, and that is is obviously the the key point here in in what's happening. Is this is not so much a, Matthew doesn't give us this so much to uh, give us a definitive timeline of of this event, but rather to show us. Um, what happens when Judas sort of wakes up and realizes what it is that he's done and what happens when the chief priests fail to do their job of speaking the forgiveness of sins to a man who has sinned and the disastrous effects of that when Judas uh, doesn't hear that word of absolution and in particular when he doesn't know, when he doesn't think he can go to Christ to find it, uh, so where he ends up taking his own life. Right. So there's there's two main and I think it it's easy to to forget this that within this text there's there's two two and I hate the word characters but characters in the sense that this is it, it's real, okay? So I I hesitate sometimes to use words like story and and character because it sometimes makes it seem as if it's fake, but this, okay, so characters, right? You've got Judas on the one hand and he stands out to us, but the chief priests the, the elders are are also important. So we need to really consider both here. Let's start with Judas because Judas is the one who's brought up first by Matthew there in verse three. Judas his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. I mean, what what does that mean that Judas changed his mind? what and I know we don't want to psychologize too much, but what what what's going on with Judas here? All right, so you just said you don't want to psychologize too much, but I'm going to psychologize a bit because uh, I <laughs> you uh, can do it. <laughs> I th I think that we have uh, a, a, a oftentimes a, a somewhat inaccurate view of of Judas. So if you kind of take a step back uh, and look a little bit more at the fullness of what's going on, some details we get from John chapter 12, right? So in John chapter 12, beginning of the chapter is when uh, Jesus ends. Uh, Jesus is anointed. Uh, by uh, his feet are anointed by Mary. Um, 
And uh, so John writes, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, I think this is a really interesting uh, thing that happens here. So, so uh, John tells us that Judas didn't, wasn't actually concerned about the poor, but that he used to help himself to what was in the money bag. And I think we have this, we sometimes have a tendency to view Judas as this guy who was sort of a, like a double agent for the devil for, uh, for the entirety of his time following Jesus. And there's not really anything in the scriptures that would in, indicate uh, that to us, um, that it would indicate that kind of motivation. Rather, I think what happens here is that you, Judas has a secret compulsion. He has a secret sin, which is that he's been stealing from the money bag. And here in this moment, he sort of tips his hand. And when Jesus responds to him and basically says, leave her alone, because you're, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Uh, it, it, the context of this appears to me that I think what's happening here is Judas is taking this as Jesus acknowledging that he knows what's really going on with him. Uh, so that Jesus is, is ultimately saying to Judas, I know what you're up to here. And in this moment, Judas feels exposed and he feels angry and he feels he gets defensive. And this and uh, in all of this, um, this happens six days before uh, Jesus is arrested. So it's not even a full week. So so it's not that Judas has been kind of conspiring from the beginning to put G Jesus to death. But what happens is uh, he realizes that G Jesus knows his secret. He gets angry at, at being rebuked, and he's nervous that he might be exposed. And after a few days of kind of turning himself upside down in anger, he makes this, this rash and anger-filled decision to throw everything away. And... Uh, so I think in, in many ways, this actually shows us that we are much more similar to Judas than we might like to admit. So this, the, the man who, it's, you know, it's easy to, to sympathize with Peter, where Peter has his moments of weakness, you know, where his denial of Jesus is born out of fear and weakness. But, uh, but we like to kind of present Judas as this guy who's always been the devil from the beginning, when in reality, he's most likely a guy who just had a really bad week. He's a guy who got completely turned upside down and filled with rage, and, and, he's, and he wants to separate himself from Jesus, and he wants to get away from all this judgment. And so he goes to the chief priest because he knows they hate him, and he says, well, all right, what are you, you going to give me if I hand him over to you? And so he conspires for this plan, and then after the plan comes to fruition, after Jesus is arrested, and once he sees very clearly uh, this is, you know, this was not some, this was not some way to just ruin Jesus's week, but this is actually going to result in Christ's death. He feels this immense regret and he changes his mind, which is the terms associated with repentance, but it's not full repentance. It's not repentance that trusts in the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. So he kind of aims it in the wrong direction and he goes to the, he goes to the chief priests and he throws the money back, and um, which uh, this thirty pieces of silver, which is uh, really interesting, because this is uh, according to the law of Moses, the amount that you pay for uh, basically for involuntary manslaughter. And so we're so in other words, it's as though it, this is kind of the other interesting thing about Judas is he doesn't want to fully admit that he knew what he was doing. So he's, he tries to kind of, oh, look, guys, this got out of hand. I didn't mean for this to end in death. Uh, it was, you know, it was an accident. Uh, I've done something wrong. Take back this money. I don't want it anymore. So this is very much something that, that we as sinners do all the time where we get, we get riled up in anger and we do something incredibly stupid and hateful, but then we don't want to admit that that's actually that we knew what we were doing the whole time. We want to say, oh, I, did, I didn't realize things were going to get so out of hand in this. And we have this kind of halfway confession of guilt. And in response to that halfway confession of guilt, Judas gets no forgiveness at all. 
Uh, the so, chief priest say, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just so so in Judas going back, and I appreciate the way you you painted the the picture for Judas because it does make him a much more relatable character within within the gospel. There that that this is not something that that we would be immune to, right? We shouldn't be standing here looking down upon Judas as if I would never do that, but rather see in him that exactly those things that exactly we would in fact do. And, and so in, in coming back, he sees things have, have just totally gotten out of hand. And, and I think to, to go back just to the timeline, this, this particular scene here of, of Judas conversation with chief priests and elders, it makes, it, it makes perfect sense in my mind to put it very close to the events of, of Matthew that he's describing. Maybe the events of Judas suicide and following come later, but right here, I think it, this, this makes good sense to see on good Friday or very close to it. And and to see, so it's like he's he's going back here, but but as you said, not in a repentance that's going to to look to Christ for forgiveness, but in a repentance that's maybe seeking to shift the blame. Kind of what you were saying earlier about the the spreading out of judgment. That that here we have an example of, of Judas trying to to throw this judgment, this sin, back upon the chief priests. He he says, "Look, I've sinned by by having this by shedding this innocent blood," and he he wants some sort of justification from them rather than than seeking the justification that comes from christ right yeah he in a way is he's trying to kind of transfer the blame onto them as though he's saying i didn't know you guys were going to take this that far you know it's it's sort of like it's sort of like a, a trope you see in movies all the time you know where uh, uh where a kid gets involved with a you know a group of of um thieves or gangsters or you know whatever it might be and and he's not as corrupt as they are and he, but he wants to kind of uh, shift the blame over to the guy who's sort of the head of the gang is the one who, you know, oh, you're the one who ended up, you know, taking things too far. You're the one uh, who made a bigger mess out of this than I, than I expected it to be. You know, I just wanted it to be a simple, uh, you know, a simple robbery, but then you started murdering people kind of, you know, things of that nature. And that's a bit of what Judas is, is doing here is it's this kind of, okay, guys, look, I, I wouldn't have done this if I would have known how far you were going to take this, which is of course a preposterous thing for, for Judas to think, because you know, dealing with Jesus is an easy thing. Uh, you know, this is this is to me one of the one of the things that's always been strange to me is when people will say, "Well, I think Jesus was, you know, a great moral teacher, but I don't think he was the Son of God." Well, he this it's one or the other. Um, so, or, or rather, it's not one or the other. I mean, so it's, so either Jesus was the Son of God and is the Son of God, and everything he said about himself was true, and he's far more than a great moral teacher, or he was a liar. And he's not, and he's therefore not worthy of your consideration. So throughout the the whole uh, trajectory of history, I doubt there are very many people you could point to who said, "Oh, that guy claimed to be God, uh, but he was also a really great guy." Uh, so you know, with with everyone in history who's made that claim, uh, you can't you can't say that. So uh, so when it comes to when it comes to Christ, well, what? on earth are they going to do, Judas? What do you think is going to happen when you say, hey, this guy that keeps saying that he's the son of God, uh, which is definitely 100% blasphemy if it's not true, uh, here he is. Do what, do what you think is, a, is appropriate with him. Well, they're not going to slap him on the wrist, and they're not going to rough him up and tell him to, to go on his way. They're going to put him to death because they know that Jesus isn't going to stop saying this. And because ultimately they're all actually afraid that it's true. And that's ultimately, you know, kind of the, it shows the, um, the sort of the weakness of Judas's confession is he knows he's done something wrong, but he wants to shift that blame and wants to pretend like uh, he didn't know you know, the way that things were, were going to go here is just a little bit like hiring, you know, like saying to a hitman, go ahead and take care of them. And then coming back afterwards and saying, and saying, well, I didn't know that you take care of them to you meant that you were going to kill them. Of course you knew what it meant. Of course you knew the way that things were going to go. Mm-hmm. So, so Judas has this, this confession of sorts. He, he at least recognizes he has sinned with this innocent blood, he, but he goes back to the chief priests and the elders to confess it. What of their answer? Yeah, so their their answer is is just the greatest failure of of a priest to exercise his office. So the priests were there to forgive the sins of the people. The priests were there uh, to pronounce absolution to those who confessed their sins. It was it was formed in a different way than the office of the ministry is today. But in the same way that if if you go into your pastor and you say, "Look, here's the sin that I've committed." 
uh, and I feel tremendous guilt over it and tremendous regret. His job is to, is to give you the blood of Jesus and to tell you that your sins are forgiven. His job is to pour out the mercy of Christ upon you, not to say, well, that's a, that's a bad situation. Good luck figuring that out, right? That w- there's, there, there would be no, uh, no answer that would prove a man more unworthy of the office than for him to respond that way. And yet this is precisely what it is that we see from the chief priests here. And it's, it's a very interesting and very telling response because it, it, it shows that they don't actually believe in the justice of their own cause. Because if, if they did, and Judas came to them and said, look, I've betrayed against innocent blood. You're going to put Jesus to death. This is really bad. If you actually were 100% convinced that you were in the right, you would say, no, look, don't feel, don't beat yourself up about this. I know that he was your friend. I know you were close with him, but this man is a liar and a blasphemer, and he's going to destroy everything, and the judgment of God is going to pour out upon us, and the Romans are going to destroy our entire nation if we don't do this. So this had to happen. It was necessary. You did a good thing by doing this. You should be, um, you should be, be proud of yourself for doing this. They don't respond that way at all. They once again just try and push everything away and make this someone else's problem. They just say, hey, go, go deal with that yourself. Deal with your own guilt yourself. And then that, that kind of same thing is shown uh, just a little bit there uh, in, in, in the next couple of verses where they, they say it's not lawful to, to these coins that Judas throws back at them. It's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it's blood money blood money blood money is is money that's tainted with sin you know so blood money though you know the way we would you know use the use the phrase today is if you had a you know if i if i'm a pastor of a congre of, of one if i'm a uh, we'll go with a sort of another movie analogy if i'm you know a catholic priest in one of these mobster movies where all these mob guys are are showing up you know for every uh, every sunday mass and you know it and you keep taking their offerings that's blood money uh, blood money, as you know, this money has been won by evil, uh, e- evil means, or you know it's been stolen by evil means, and yet you accept it. So the fact that they say, no, 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 we, we, we have to obey the law of Moses. We can't possibly accept this illegitimate money and put it, uh, and put it into the treasury. Well, where did Judas get the money in the first place? He got it from them. So it's, the, it's this fascinating acknowledgement that they know that what they're doing is sinful, but they just simply won't, their hearts are hardened and they will not process that information. Before we, before we go, go into that, that part of the scene further, just finish in terms of what happens to Judas. He, he hears this devastating answer and, and his response is despair and and suicide. Yeah. So see to it yourself is what they say to him. And that's exactly what Judas does is uh is he goes and he administers to himself the punishment for murderers he hangs upon a tree right he hangs himself he's not crucified but he hangs he hangs upon a tree which is the the punishment uh given for those for those of this of this capital crime so um so it, it is such a such a profoundly sad moment I, i've often said that there are a number of details in the gospels that make it abundantly clear this is a true these are all true stories these things all happened and and a number of those things are things that you would not have happen if you were making up a story because they just don't kind of fit the mold of um of the stories that humans tell themselves so I, i've often kind of halfway joked and but this is entirely true that one of the things that shows that the that the gospels are reliable historical narratives is that every woman in the gospels uh, is named mary and that's incredibly confusing. And the only reason you would have seven or eight or nine, however many Marys there are, is because that's actually what their names were. And another thing is, if you want a story of redemption, if you want a story highlighting the profound mercy and forgiveness of God, that story is Judas leaving the chief priests and going to the foot of the cross and repenting to his Lord there and finding forgiveness. And it's Judas becoming the chief apostle uh, after the death and resurrection of Christ. I mean, if, if you're going to tell a story about the, about the mercy of God, in, in that sense, Judas is a better figure to highlight the, the mercy of God even than Peter is. But 
that's not the way the story goes because that's not what happened. That's just simply not the historical event of things. And God chose his own reasons for, uh, for things happening the way that they did and choosing, you know, um, who, you know, sort of who of the disciples was going to be the Judas of the group, which is sort of a weird thing to say, but you get the idea there. Um, so, you know, you have this great moment where if you were telling a made up story that where you were just kind of wanting to highlight certain themes, this would end with, with Judas finding redemption. Uh, at the foot of the cross, but it doesn't. It just simply shows sometimes people don't believe. And when people don't believe, when you tell someone who has no confidence and no hope and forgiveness and who's who's riddled with guilt, see to it yourself, that's precisely what he does. He sees to it himself and he administers to himself the punishment according to the scriptures that uh, that he knows he deserves. It it is a, a terribly tragic moment there with with Judas, and and making it all the more tragic is these these chief priests, the elders, whose responsibility was to forgive the people, and rather than pointing them to or pointing Judas to this true sacrifice that's about to take place at their own hands, they they have no answer for him at all. And and as you've said, their their guilt, they know that they're doing this wrong. They they admit it by their actions within the text. So they take this this blood money that Judas has thrown back to them. And, and they buy a field with it. It's going to be a burial place uh, for strangers. Just what, what's going on here? Yeah, so the, uh, the field of blood, uh, which is, this is um, uh, the burial place for strangers. So uh, if I remember correctly on this, I don't have the details right in front of me, but this was a, kind of another ordinance according to the, to the law of Moses. Um, and so that you would have a place to, to bury those who were, um, to sort of show dignity to those who had died amongst you, but were um, uh, were not known and were not um, sort of you know members of your of your people. Um, so yeah, so they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers, and that's when you come into this uh, bit of an odd section in, in Matthew's gospel, which is oftentimes a little bit confusing. Um, where he, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah, but then he has a quote that is uh, in part uh, from Jeremiah, but largely from the prophet Zechariah, which has um, led some people to, uh, to, to make the charge of, of uh, the errancy of the scriptures that, oh, this is a mistake that, that Matthew made. Um, I think, though, however, um, I, I'm pretty persuaded by the argument that what's actually happening here is this is a style of quoting the scriptures that you actually do see quite frequently a number of times uh, in the New Testament where you'll have you have a bunch of scriptural passages kind of lumped together, which, um, you know, likely comes from, you know, back in the days when obviously people it was manuscripts were very difficult to come by and you couldn't nobody owned a you know a full private collection. Um, of the scriptures that were readily available to them is that people would memorize passages of scripture and they would memorize them along kind of topical lines. So you're memorizing chunks of passages from here and from there, from various different books uh, that are all kind of linked to linked by a common theme. And so there's a bit in, uh, in Zechariah uh, where um, as Zechariah is, what is it, chapter, I forget the exact, cha uh, forget the exact chapter, um, but where, um, uh, where the prophet is, uh, is, is talking about this, if, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. Uh, and, the, and they weighed out my wages as 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price uh, at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Uh, so the, the, it comes from a section of Zechariah's book uh, talking about God's judgment uh, against Judah and Israel. And then you also have, uh, quoting from, uh, uh, you have bringing in bits of Jeremiah as well. Um, so from Jeremiah chapter 19, then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts. So I will break this people and the city and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Um, so in, in all of this, what, what's probably happening here is that Matthew is referencing kind of a, a chunk of the scriptures that people would have had memorized and is attributing it to Jeremiah because that's the major prophet of the group. So it's even more, it's probably more so that he's not so much saying, uh, you know, the, that the prophet Jeremiah specifically wrote these words, but that these were uh, the words on this topic 
which we would know as being from um, by the name of Jeremiah and then sort of these other associated prophets. It's, it seems to be what it is that Matthew is doing there. Right. They, he, we should allow the, the writers of the scriptures to follow their rules when it comes to the way that they would quote the Old Testament rather than our rules living in a totally different time period. And so, yeah, what, right. what Matthew's doing here, although it may seem strange to us, is is perfectly legitimate and, and Holy Spirit-inspired true word of God for us. Pastor Feeney, we've got just under three minutes left here on the morning as, as we summarize and wrap things up. We've talked a lot about the warning and, and of judgment of the for Judas for the for the chief priest as well, but maybe as, as a way to wrap up, what's the what's the comfort in this text for us as Christians? Yeah, the the comfort in this text for us as Christians is uh, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier. The reason Judas doesn't find forgiveness isn't because it wasn't there; it was because he didn't see it and he wouldn't open his eyes to see it, and he was blinded by his own grief. But um, so the, the comfort in this text is if Judas had actually gone to the foot of the cross, what would his Lord have said to him? And we, we have the answer. I mean, we have it, you know, in the fact that you know, Peter denies Jesus three times during his passion. And then in John chapter 21, Jesus restores Peter three times with this feed my lambs, feed my sheep, uh, feed my sheep. Uh, I may have quoted those out of order, but you, uh, you get the idea there. So where where uh, for for each time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus restores him and proclaims forgiveness to him and and brings him back into the to the apostolic office that Peter himself threw away by denying Jesus. I mean that's the that's if a disciple is ultimately a a follower of Jesus. Uh, then there's there's no better definition of not following someone than trying to push in the opposite direction of them, and and ultimately this is what it is that Christ most certainly would have said to Judas, that uh, your sin is put away, that the blood that you extracted from my veins is the blood that I have used to forgive you and to welcome you back into my kingdom, and ultimately that's what it is what it is that Judas or Jesus would have said to Judas is what Jesus says to all of us. We are the ones responsible for the death of Jesus. We're the ones who pounded the nails into his hands and his feet on account of our sins. All of our attempts to make ourselves righteous and holy before God resulted in nothing but the Son of God dead upon the cross. And yet it's from that cross that Jesus breathes out those words, it is finished. And with those words, Jesus is proclaiming to us that the the it of those words it is finished is the is the process of dying for our sins it's this atoning act that makes us holy and gives us the right to live with him forever that's ultimately what it is that jesus says to us on the cross pastor hans feeney is the pastor at river of life lutheran church in shanahan illinois helping us this morning with matthew chapter 27 verses 1 through 10. We are sinners. The guilt is ours, but we don't have to see to it ourselves. Jesus has seen to it for us by his death, by his resurrection. That is our joy to stand forgiven in him, in Christ. It is finished. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.